Charles Templeton, who uh, was and is a friend of the former uh, Billy Graham, first professed his faith in 1936, and he became an evangelist at that same time and in the same year as Billy Graham. In 1945, he met Billy Graham, and the two became friends. They roomed and ministered together during a Youth for Christ camp evangelistic tour in Europe back in 1946. Both Templeton and Graham even partnered in the crusade ministry for a time. But by 1948, Charles Templeton's life and worldview were beginning to go in a different direction than Billy's. Doubts about the Christian faith were solidifying as he planned to enter, to enter Princeton Theological Seminary. And less than a decade later, he would publicly declare that he had become an agnostic. He had walked away from his faith. And part of his decision lay in the fact that he could not reconcile the pain and suffering he saw in the world with a loving and gracious God. It's as if these two ideas, pain and suffering and goodness and graciousness in God, they couldn't find a home in his mind and in his heart. Now, one of the questions that many pastors and theologians uh, often hear, it's something that I've heard, and especially from those who are skeptical of the Christian faith, is this. If God is so loving, then why is there so much pain and suffering in our world? Or maybe perhaps you've heard it this way. Why do bad things happen to good people, right? Now, to be frank, that is a very honest question. And it's also the subject that plays out in the story of Naomi and Ruth. If God is such a good and gracious God, then why does he allow Naomi and Ruth to go through so much headache and heartache? We've been walking now for three weeks in the book of Ruth. This is our third week. And we've looked at how God uses redemption, this idea of redemption to romance us, to woo us, to show us, demonstrate to us his love for us and his ultimate grace for us. But instead of pressing our story further, instead of introducing to you the prominent main character of Boaz and the role that he's going to play in Naomi and Ruth, as Naomi and Ruth's redeemer, Cliffhanger, come back next week, right? We're going to be introduced to an amazing man who is a prefigure of Christ. He and Jesus Christ have a lot in common. He's a godly and good and just and noble character. And we're going to see that Ruth is a, is a God-fearing wonderful woman who's just as noble in her character. In fact, you could say she is the Proverbs 31 woman. And if you are actually a Jewish person, the book of Ruth comes after Proverbs 31, not after the book of Judges as it is in our text. And as it was pointed out to me by my brother Aaron um, a couple weeks ago, it's intentional that way 
because the collectors of scripture wanted you to know there's someone who demonstrates for us Proverbs 31. Have you ever been a woman and read Proverbs 31 and said, oh my gosh, this seems impossible, right? Okay, well, Ruth shows us that, it's, that it is possible, that it is obtainable because of her character. So we're going to pause that story, come back. That's a teaser, come back next week. Because I think it's good for us to at least attempt to wrestle with the problem of pain today. Why is it that there's so much suffering in our world if God is in fact to, supposed to be a good God? Or at the very least, why, doesn't, why don't we see God intervening in different ways in the affairs of men and at least stopping the extreme forms of evil and suffering that we see in our world? Some of us would like to say in the immortal words of um, what was Lucy's uh, husband, Desi? God, you got some slaying to do, right? Now, before we put God in the box, the hot seat, because we're mere mortals, right? I think it's good for us to at least pause for a moment and wrestle with this idea of pain. Now, in our story of Naomi and Ruth, we see that Naomi has come to the brink of life. She is a foreigner living in a foreign land, and her husband and two sons have died. And her daughters-in-law, for all appearances, are infertile and incapable of bearing children. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 13, we read about how Naomi laments to her daughters as she is trying to send them both away. She says this, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. And as she's returning to Bethlehem and entering into the village, she says to the shock of the women who once knew her, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Mara means bitterness. I went away full. And Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me? Now, friends, you do not need a seminary degree to see that from the story, from the text of Ruth chapter 1, that there's anything to indicate, at least to us as the readers, that Naomi has done anything to deserve or warrant this level of pain in her life. In fact, if you see Naomi in her, even in her confession, that she believes that God has brought this calamity upon her. Now, whether he's done it directly, he certainly had the power to intervene and yet has chosen not to. And even in all of this, in her faith, in her, in her understanding of God, she does not believe. She does not come to the point of despair or even saying that there's anything that she has done to deserve this type of pain. And isn't it a mirror of the man Job? And in the book of Job, at least we as the readers know that it wasn't God who caused all the pain. It was Satan who caused all of his pain. And yet we're told that in everything, God, Job does not curse God, 
or credit him with wrongdoing. Now, he will say, God, if I've done something wrong, show me, because I can't find a thing. That's different than saying bad things about God. And what we see is we see there's nothing, at least in our story, to warrant this level of pain in Naomi's life. It is safe, I think, to assume that if there was a justifiable reason, that, that the author would have clued us in on it. So this only heightens the tension for us, does it not? Aren't we left saying, God, why, why is this poor woman going through so much pain and adversity? But again, Naomi's response, she does not accuse God of wrongdoing. She does not lose her essential faith in Yahweh. Now, for sure, she was not excited about her pain, friends. She didn't fake it, okay? She didn't lie about it. She didn't try to hide it. And recently, you've heard me say that we have a problem in our society, in our Western society. We have a problem in our church. You have a problem. You didn't know it. I'm going to tell you. You have a problem. I have a problem too. We like to lie. We like to hide. And we like to fake what is actually going on in our lives. We don't like to tell people the things that we are truly and accurately struggling with. Because we have a greater fear of man than of being honest and vulnerable. But Naomi, she demonstrates for us openness and vulnerability when she says, do not call me pleasant, call me bitter. Because that is the condition of my heart. And next week, we're actually going to see in the text that there's, we can make a case that Naomi has clinical depression. While she has not given up on God, she has given up on life. So what gives? Why is it that Naomi could still hold on to her faith in Yahweh, even laying the cause of her pain upon him, but does not walk away from faith in him? like so many people do in our time? Why is it that she can go through what she goes through, but we go through less, and we find a greater temptation to make God out to be the bad guy when bad things happen? Well, let me propose that the main reason is that we have brought into our lives the narrative that life is supposed to be filled with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We believe that life is supposed to be comfortable, if not easy. If it's not going to be easy, it at least has to be comfortable. Now, whether consciously or not, I think it's easy for us to buy into this line that good things are supposed to happen to good people, right? But in that understanding... In that motto of life, there's one very critical flaw. It's that no one is good in and of themselves. If left alone to our own ambitions, our own devices, without the fear of being held accountable, all of us, all of us are capable of all manner of evil, are we not? 
That's a condition that we've all inherited when our original parents, Adam and Eve, chose their will over God's way. And friends, if left alone, if God did not do anything for us, if God does not do anything to us, if left our own way, we will choose ourselves over God. In his letter to the Roman Christians, the Apostle Paul quotes a collection of Psalms when he writes this, and it's going to be up on your screen. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The problem with our humanity is that when, we, when left by yourself, you will always choose to worship something else other than God. You are an idol factory. I am an idol factory. If you want to know if something's an idol in your life, try giving it up. If you cannot freely give it up without freaking out, it is an idol in your life. Some of you, I dare you, get rid of your Netflix subscription. Some of you, I dare you, get rid of your smartphone. Some of you, I dare you, get rid of Amazon Prime. That's pushing it too far, Pastor Steve. You're, you have this sinful bent. Sin is actually described as a bent, being bent to abandoning God. And here's the thing, our own world, which is also affected by sin, seems hell-bent on influencing us to, as the great theologians Fleetwood Mac would tell us, go your own way. Some of you are going to have a hard time getting that song out of your heads later today, right? Go your own way. Paul also describes himself as... Uh, And his sinfulness in this same way, he says this about himself. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. In the corrupted flesh, there's nothing in us that would cause us to pursue God. We're taught, um, sorry, I had to, my notes flipped over. Uh, I know it's not a, this is not a complete philosophical answer. Some of you who are desiring more complex like logic today are going to be left mad at me, okay? I'm a simple kind of guy. I want to keep it pretty basic. And I think one of the main reasons why there's so much pain in our world, for those of you who would like to take notes in your bulletin, is this. We are not good people. I know some of you are like, Steve, you don't know me. I don't need to know you. I want to know you, but I don't need to know you because I know there's nothing in us. Now, I know some of you may push back against me and say something, Steve, sure, I am no Saint Teresa, but compared to Hitler, I'm pretty darn good. Have you ever noticed inevitably we always compare things to Hitler? Yes, you compare yourself to Hitler, you're going to be a Saint Teresa, right? But this too is a problem. We always compare ourselves to bad examples, You usually don't have to look very hard to find someone who's worse than you. Especially if the goal is to feel better about yourself or to justify a decision, right? But if we're going to play the comparison game, shouldn't we compare ourselves, I don't know, to some more objective standard? 
something outside of humanity happens to go by the name of God. If you really want to compare your goodness, compare yourself to the goodness of God. Compare yourself to him. We're we're told no less than nine times in the Bible that we are to be holy in the exact same way that God is holy. Let me say that again. We're told no less than nine times in the scriptures that we are to be holy in the same way that God himself is holy. Holiness means to be separated from, to be distinct from everything else. Now, there's two aspects of holiness for those of us who are in Christ. The first is to be holy in regards to sin. That is, you're to separate yourself from sinful things. Some of you, you've come to know Christ and you've, you've come to accept his salvation and his grace for you, but you still play around with things that cause you to sin. And some of you are really, really, really relying on the grace of God for your life. It's, it's like the, the saying that I, I've shared a lot with my first supervisor in the military who happened to be Catholic and he had a false view of what it means to be Catholic when he said, I love being Catholic because I can sin like the devil six days a week and become a saint on Sunday. The scriptures would tell us not to use the use um, the grace of God as a license to sin. Friends, we are called to be holy. We are called to not participate in the things that God would dare not even touch. And yet, we still flirt with it. We still play with it. And I'm going to put myself in that same category, okay? I, too, am still tempted. I, too, I know this shocks you. I'm human. I didn't come here from another planet. I, too, even though I'm a pastor, even though I'm supposed to be perfect, I know, I get it, I'm supposed to be perfect. I'm not. And neither are you. But not only are you supposed to be separate from sin, that's one aspect of holiness, to be, to be distinct from it, but we're also be supposed to be separated to God. That is, that is, we're supposed to act like him. We're supposed to sound like him. We're supposed to participate in the same things that he would participate in. Or as Jesus simply put it in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So how's your standard, your definition now of what is good? Jesus even said to a gentleman, to a teacher of the law, you call me good, as you know, there's only one who's good, and that is God. If we play this comparison game, then the person we ought to compare ourselves to is God, but I don't think we're quite comfortable doing that, are we? Friends, we, we are not, in the core of our humanity, good people. One of the best prayers ever prayed in the Bible was uttered not by a holy man, but a despised, wicked tax collector. How many of you love the IRS? Nobody. If you're with the IRS, I apologize. God loves you. He says this as he's beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's one of the most beautiful prayers in all of scriptures. Someone who's not lying, hiding, or faking the true condition of who they are. 
Friends, not only are we not actually good people, but did you know that you have an adversary who hates your guts? The very fact that God loves you. While we may want to dismiss the spiritual realm or that there may actually be very real, malevolent, evil beings who are hell-bent on your destruction, for most of human history, the existence of demons and the demonic and dark spiritual forces has been taken as fact. And if you were to go to other parts of the world, to most of the world, that happens to not be white, If you go to Africa, if you go to Latin America, if you go to Asia, if you go to a lot of other places in the world, the spiritual realm is still very much real and a fact. It's only been the last 400 years or so during the Enlightenment period where Western culture has worshipped science and reason and the spiritual realm has taken a back seat And here's the thing, Satan loves it that we don't believe in him. It's music to his ears. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to rub some of you the wrong way, and I'm okay with that. I hate horror movies. I hate that I know of brothers and sisters in Christ that I love very deeply who go and see horror movies And they use the passage of scripture that everything is permissible for me. I can go see it and ask God's grace to cover me and protect me through it. And I say, hogvash. Everything may be permissible, but not everything is beneficial. I hate horror movies. It's like giving Satan an invitation to torment you in your dreams, and in your thoughts. But have you ever wondered about the fascination that our society has with horror movies? We like to pretend that it's just a game, and so we create family games called Ouija boards. We create things like magic eight balls. And we use phrases, even as well-meaning Christians, and please stop saying this, it's just not in the cards. What, you consult tarot cards? Did you know that's where that comes from? Friends, we have this fascination as a society with dark spirituality that is hell-bent on your destruction, and we like to pretend that it actually doesn't exist, but we like to play around with it and flirt with it. Friends, we are taught in Ephesians by the Apostle Paul to not be ignorant of the battle that is taking place in our life when he wrote, and it's on the screen for you here, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Your conflict is not with your boss. Your conflict is not with your spouse. Your conflict is not with a strange uh, family member or friend or neighbor. You wrestle against spiritual powers principalities, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a very real spiritual world that is hell-bent on your destruction, friends. If you're taking notes, another reason why there is so much pain and suffering in our world is this, the devil hates you. 
the devil hates you. He does not like that you're the apple of God's eye. He doesn't like that God did everything in his power to redeem you, to give you a new life in Christ. So friends, if you want to keep flirting around, by all means, do so, but do so at great detriment to your own soul. There's a very real dark spirituality that is taking place in our lives, in our culture. Sometimes it's really easy to spot out, like the purge or pet cemetery. Sometimes it's not as easy to spot out, like secularism and individuality and freedom and things that sound good, but actually somewhere behind it, there's something uh, much, much more sinister at place. Now, we could spend months dissecting the problem of pain and suffering. I even, even talked about w- the byproducts of other people's sin. Sometimes bad things happen in our world because other people's sinful actions. I, we could go on about that. I haven't talked about natural consequences uh, to things. I, I haven't talked about how our world has been shaped by sin and it groans and waits for resurrection, for new to become a new earth. I, I, haven't even ta- I haven't even talked about national sin and how sometimes our lives are affected with pain and suffering because our nation is disobeying God. So we could talk even more and more. We could spend months. And let me tell you, you still would not be fully satisfied in the answers because there's this tension that exists. Because there's this tension that exists between a belief in a loving God and a world plagued by sin, I want us to close our time by looking at three lessons that we can glean from the book of Ruth that we've already seen that can better help us processing our own pain and suffering, our own pain and suffering in real time. Here's three lessons if you're taking notes. One, you never have all the facts. You never have all the facts. You are supposed to live in the world of faith. As the writer of Hebrews put it, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Did you know for those of us, you here in this room, if you have said yes to Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried in the tomb and three days later was rose from the dead to demonstrate that he has the power of God to save your sins and as a future promise for your own resurrection, if you've made that statement of belief in your heart, okay, Jesus says you have greater faith than even the apostles Let that blow your mind for a moment. You have greater faith than those who saw the resurrected Christ because you believe and you have not seen. We're not gonna see all the things that that God is doing behind the scenes. Naomi was unable to see all the things that God was doing behind the scenes. That's because we do not have all the facts God does not, in his wisdom, for whatever reason it's known to him, he chooses not to share all the facts with us. 
I supposed last week that perhaps it's because we would question him more and complain a lot more, right? But friends, we're supposed to live in the realm of faith. Faith means, God, I'm going to take you at your word even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's uncomfortable. But not only do we not have all the facts, but also this, God meets you in your pain. I've often heard it said that what Satan means as a temptation, God means as a test, that, God, that Satan wants to use something to tempt you away from him, and God wants to use that very same thing to cause you to grow deeper in your love and relationship with, with you, and he wants to meet you in that point of pain and suffering. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, it's going to be on the screen, says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because Christ Jesus came in human flesh and was weak in the same ways that we were weak and experienced all temptations, yet did not sin. We can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive what? Mercy. And find what? Grace. When? In the time of need. The time of need. God knows what it's like to be human. God knows what you're going through. He knows the pain, and he stands ready to meet you there. But it requires a willing heart. It requires a faithful heart that trusts him, that cries out to him. Friends, God wants to meet you in your pain. You never have all the facts. You don't know all the things that are going on in your life. And the last thing is this. All of life is a gift from God. All of life is a gift from God. We're told by Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 5, that he is the vine and we are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, we are called to remain connected and fellowship with God through Jesus Christ and the community of faith. You have often heard me say that you do not need to come here to Glenfair to receive world-class preaching and instruction in the word. Not that I'm claiming to be world-class because I am not. There are much, much better preachers than I. You could stay at home. You could live stream a church. Shoot, I think you could go to like a virtual reality church, um, Second Life or whatever. I don't know. You, you don't even have to be present here. The problem, though, is that life was never meant to be lived in isolation. You've all seen the National Geographic video of the helicopter following a, f a herd of, like, goats or gazelles or deers, right, being chased by a pack of wolves. What happens to the one that leaves the flock? Dinner, boys. That's what it becomes, right? Satan looks to pick off the weak ones. The weak ones are those who neglect coming together in community, in community. And when we're in community, we find that all of life is a gift from God. 
Friends, I know you're going to judge me in a moment. Last night, I was watching American Idol. I know, I know. Some of the things that come out of their mouths, the judges, I just want to shake my head at. But um, Lionel Richie, um, he made a comment about hearing one of the stories of one of the contestants and what he went through. And he says this, and I don't know what his faith is, if he has a faith or what it's like, but it's, it was just so true and it so points to this. He said that that morning he had woken up with some complaints about his physical body, but he was going to go to bed that night blessed with the life that he had because of the struggle that another person went through. Friends, when we go through dark stuff, we need to surround ourselves with a community of faith because chances are someone in the, com- in the community has already experienced that and has a word of encouragement for you. It says that we're able to comfort those with the comfort that we, are, we ourselves have received. You cannot receive comfort from Christ as an island unto yourself. It was God It was God who said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And he created woman. And from that point on, he created human relationships. And it's in the context of community that we find out, that we really understand that all of life, even the pain and suffering, is a gift from God. So friends, don't become the statistic of 1.8 times a month coming to church. On those times when you wake up and you think, oh, I don't feel so good. Go, come, be here. On those times where you wake up saying, oh, I'm good, I don't need that today. Oh, you better come. Okay, you better come. Friends, I can tell you, I can tell you the condition of my life and spirituality when I look at, at certain disciplines in my life. How long has it been since I've journaled? How long has it been since I've been in the community of faith? How long has it been since I've met with other spiritual mentors of mine? The longer the distance between those two things, that tells me that disaster's around the corner in my life, Right? Sin is crouching at the door waiting to devour me like it was with Cain. Friends, all of life is a gift from God. Friends, God wants to meet you in your pain. And we have to remember that we do not have all of the facts. There's a real enemy who hates your guts, who absolutely hates your guts. And if we don't have a relationship, an active relationship with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father, then nothing that we do is good. And we'll become uh, even greater idol factories worshiping our own lives. Friends, that's the problem of pain and suffering in our world. And so I hope you are going to come away from here, that you're going to leave this place not needing an answer for everything that happens in your life, but knowing that God stands ready and has already given you everything that you need for life and godliness and to make it through all that life throws your way. Amen? Friends, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much.
for the story of Naomi and Ruth and the life that, of faith that they lived out for us. And God, I'm excited that next week we get to be introduced to Boaz, a man who models your heart and your character, what it means to be noble and sacrificial and generous. Uh, if I may, God, Boaz is a type of Christ pointing us to Jesus. He's an example of the greater redeemer to come. And so God, I'm excited about next week. But God, I know that uh, in between today and next week, there's still life to be lived. And I know that some of us here in this room are experiencing our own pain and suffering and we're asking God why. And I pray that Lord, you would help them in their pain and suffering to know that they don't need to have all of the facts but that you love them and want to meet them where they're at. And that their life is not a tragic mistake, but is a good thing that you are doing, that you are moving them in a place, just like you moved Jonah in the belly of a great fish to the place of obedience. God, you use pain and suffering to move us into a place of greater faith and obedience in you. So God, let us not despair or lose hope or lose faith. And let us not flirt with the kingdom of darkness any longer. But God, let us simply rest in our faith in you and trust you even when life doesn't make sense, even when our pain is difficult to bear. And God, may we see more of you and your spirit in our life. And all of God's people said, amen.